This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalog Season 2. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, part-time community, part-time academic. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your own center, and this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. One of those experts is Dr. Jan Dutz. He's a professor and head of the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at UBC. He's also a senior scientist with the British Columbia Children's Hospital Research Institute. And although this isn't part of my notes, he was previously the chief examiner for the Royal College. And so, Dr. Dutz, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Dermalogs. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, have a little bit of time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, one of the things when I asked the residents, what do you want to hear about in season two? Various topics with respect to dermatology and rheumatology came up. And it just seemed like a natural choice to speak to you about it, as you are a dermatologist and rheumatologist. So I think it's nice for the residents to hear from you from both perspectives. Um, Okay, so I think we'll just launch right into it. And usually I'll chat first, but I think one of the questions the residents had uh, would be a nice place to start. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Christina Clemenson at Dalhousie University. My question is, what is your approach to the undifferentiated autoimmune or rheumatology dermatology patient? Thank you. Well, uh, I guess the the first thing is to decide um, what the prevailing process is. So if you have a patient that, as you say, undifferentiated, let's say undifferentiated rheumatology patient. So the patients that come to me from rheumatologists, uh, they often come with a specific question. And the two of the most common specific questions are, uh, is this an autoimmune disease or is this an autoinflammatory disease? So we now separate uh, diseases into these categories that are not completely mutually exclusive, but have specific characteristics that point to one thing versus another. Right. So in the autoinflammatory disease group, you have things like Bichette's disease, uh, maybe vasculitis um, Mm -hmm. in in some forms uh, and uh, recurrent fevers and, uh, you know, the genetic autoinflammatory disorders, which are much rarer. Uh, But these are people who get recurrent episodic inflammation and need a solution because they can't go through their life taking doses of prednisone all the time. Mm -hmm. So I have a specific uh, approach to those patients uh, that involves uh, documenting those episodes of inflammation and documenting the clinical findings that are are associated with them. Because often those patients have episodic problems, and by the time they get to see you, they're actually fine. But Mm -hmm. they have a history of having had fevers, uh, you know, once a month or, or once every two weeks uh, associated with feeling horrible. Uh, and so um, with those patients, I have a routine set of tests that looks for inflammation. Uh, and I ask them to get those blood tests done uh, when they're feeling fine and when they have an episode of inflammation. 
And okay. I also ask them to use their cell phones and document any cutaneous eruptions they may have um, uh, and, uh, and then come back to me, usually a month or two after with, with that background. What we look for are elevations of commonly CRP, Patients with things like adult onset stills disease would have high ferritin, so I order that as well. Um, I order a CBC and differential to see if there are any changes in neutrophil counts. Um, and uh, that's probably where I would start. And those okay. patients, I also screen for autoantibodies, so the ANA, ENA, uh, because as I said, sometimes autoinflammation can, can turn over or meld with autoimmunity. Um, but that's one start. Then, okay. the, then there's the other group are the autoimmune patients. Right. And there, often the, 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 the situation is they don't have an episodic problem. They have a chronic problem uh, that hasn't yet been sorted out. Uh, and that's associated with feeling unwell, having joint pains, uh, having weakness. Um, and often there, the question is, is this lupus? Is it dermatomyositis if the rash is prominent? So it's between mm -hmm. those two. Uh, if they have episodic rashes uh, and maybe vasculitis, the question of Sjogren's arises. Um, and less commonly, uh, mixed connective tissue disease, um, which is sort of uh, in between, uh, in between uh, lupus uh, and, uh, and systemic sclerosis, right? The, gra the grab bag of rheumatology. Right. So the, um, and, and there, um, it's a matter of doing a careful clinical exam uh, and looking at the cutaneous features to see if that can give you a clue. So um, uh, uh, urticarial, uh, urticarial things happen in autoinflammatory disease, but they also mm -hmm. happen in lupus. Urticarial lesions happen, for example, in Sjogren's uh, and can be a clue to that. Um, uh, the, the, the eruptions of lupus, uh, there are a number of lupus-specific skin eruptions, as you know, uh, subacute cutaneous, uh, acute cutaneous, uh, and, and chronic cutaneous lupus or discoid lupus, and also tumid lupus. So we mm -hmm. look specifically for those things. Dermatomyositis is usually more subtle. Uh, often those patients present with itch or a, uh, an, an, uh, an eruption on the scalp. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the more classic findings, which are the, you know, the Gautron's papules, Gautron signs, um, and in all of these patients, autoinflammatory versus autoimmune, I, I make a point of examining the uh, proximal nail folds and the capillary pattern to see if there's any abnormalities there. Those are and most common with dermatomyositis yes. uh, and with systemic sclerosis. Much do you tend to do that with your dermatoscope or just sort of... I use my dermatoscope in all of okay. those patients. Of course. And I, I find it very useful because it helps me... Uh, sometimes classify patients as having vascular prominent disease as in dermatomyositis or systemic sclerosis. Uh, and it also helps me in terms of uh, assessing those patients in terms of disease activity, because that's often the first thing to appear. Uh, and when you treat them adequately, one of the first things to get better over time. There's a pearl. Yeah, um, maybe. Now, <laughs> I, I wasn't aware of that, so I will start taking a closer look. Yeah, I find now, this quite dynamic. So I just, sorry. Uh, and, oh, right. And it, so yeah. you, it can be quite helpful in following these patients. 
in terms of, um, so if you're seeing a patient, you're doing the history, you're kind of going down one of those routes in your mind, and then you're ordering an auto antibodies um, as part of your routine blood yep. work, you know, I think that sometimes a challenge is how do you interpret those auto antibodies? What type of patterns are sticking out at you? And, and so, you know, I guess what would make you definitively want to go down one route or the other, or, or do you have any tips on the way that you might interpret autoantibodies? Well, uh, there's, there's, there's chapters of books written on autoantibodies. Right. It can be quite <laughs> Tell a- Tell me in two minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, essentially, it, uh, a lot of how you interpret it depends also on what technology is being employed by the lab that you use. And right. more and more, our autoantibodies are done in a multiplex systems uh, and bead systems and are essentially screening tools, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so normally what we do in, in, in our province is order just an ANA and an ENA uh, and uh, plus or minus other specific clinical indications, uh, maybe an ANCA, um, mm -hmm. and we get a panel back, right? right. Um, and I have to say, um, I use it mainly to validate my clinical suspicions, okay. all right? Um, so an ANA is useful in the clinical setting of someone with autoimmune disease. Um, when one is, for example, uh, thinking about lupus, if it's positive, we usually go on and do an anti-double-stranded DNA, which is more specific, uh, and, uh, and can, can tell you activity of disease. Um, an anti... SSA or SSB is also useful because it can can lead you to a clinical spectrum of disease, right? Yeah. Uh, patients with SSA, SSB have different disease than, than those just with a standard ANA with a, a predominance of photosensitivity, subacute cutaneous lupus, and maybe vascular disease. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, that can be useful. Um, the uh, other antibodies uh, are useful in terms of prognosis for lupus when you do an ENA, but not that helpful uh, diagnostically. The, the real conundrum uh, that occurs is when you refer to a patient who has a positive ANA and not much else. And we, and can, <laughs> we, we can go into that in a few minutes. And I was just about to say, I think that would be something we could delve into. Yes. Let's actually take another question from one of the residents right now. Hi Dermalogs, this is Rob Babotsis at the University of Toronto program. My question is, what do you do with a positive ANA result for a patient who has a low likelihood for an autoimmune disease? Do you chase this value and search for a cause? How far do you dig into it? Or what do I do? Well, what do, what do you do? Yeah, what yeah. do you do if that gets sent to you? I get uh, occasional referrals of patients uh, with an ANA and no clinical symptoms or I see a patient with, a, with an eruption uh, where I may want to explore that and I get a positive ANA and yet there really isn't any other finding except maybe facial erythema consistent with rosacea, you know, that goes right. on. And it, so um, what I do in those cases, I, I, if there's a significant positive ANA and that is a titer of over one in 80, so I would mm -hmm. say one in 80 is still borderline, in a patient where there could be disease, so let's say a young woman, um, right. 
I usually do the uh, ancillary tests, so okay. laboratory tests, which means an anti-double-stranded DNA, C3, C4, CRP, and urinalysis. Okay. Um, and I and I can, if there is laboratory disease uh, with and, and a CBC and diff, if there's laboratory disease, I will find it. Okay. Uh, I ask my usual clinical questions. You know, do you have uh, photosensitivity, fatigue, Raynaud's phenomenon, um, uh, and arthritis? I guess those are the the, the four cardinal things. Uh, and then I uh, and then I leave it at that, and okay. I base it on my clinical impression. What I right. often have are these patients that just have the ANA and are otherwise well. What do I tell them? Well, I tell them ANAs are not uncommon, especially in young women, and may indicate a predilection of, of autoimmune disease in the future. Mm -hmm. So I go over with them uh, a, a quick spiel of things that they can do to minimize the onset of autoimmune disease. And... Uh, we know epidemiologically that lupus and other autoimmune diseases, uh, including rheumatoid arthritis, for example, psoriasis, are linked with a number of what I would call uh, at-risk activities. All right. Okay. So <laughs> you don't want um, to call them bad so, habits. Bad I habits. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> so the at uh, so so those at-risk activities include smoking. Right. Uh, uh, have getting a sunburn mm -hmm. for lupus. Um, uh, and uh, and that's that. It's basically those two things, right? Okay. Um, right. Uh, obesity is a, a risk factor for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, but less for these autoimmune diseases. All okay. right. Yeah. Um, then I tell them uh, what else can they do? Well, uh, they can make sure they uh, have adequate levels of vitamin D, uh, and that. Uh, uh, I, as a as a dermatologist or rheumatologist, can actually order uh, a vitamin D level in these people. And if it's low, I, I do counsel them on oral vitamin D supplementation. Um, the other thing that is associated with um, with autoimmune disease is a history of severe drug reaction. And of course, that's not something that that, that you, in terms of a patient, can can affect in any behavior. Mm -hmm. It's just another piece of the puzzle if there's a history of that. Right. So that's basically the, the, the spiel I give to my patients. And I say, look, your, your absolute risk, your relative risk of autoimmune disease is higher than, than someone who doesn't have these diseases, but your absolute risk is still very low. Uh, and um, uh, if they peg me on that, I, I would usually say easily in the order of uh, one in 20 or 5% or lower, right? Okay. Um, so as long as they're aware of the signs and symptoms of disease, um, I, I tell them, look, if any of these things happen, I'm happy to see you back again. If you get a rash that doesn't resolve, you know, uh, come back and see me. If you start getting joint pains and discomfort, I'm happy to see you again. Uh, if you, you know, et cetera. And do you recommend uh, to the primary care physician or referring physician, for example, that they uh, periodically recheck the ANA? Or do you just take that as a, hey, it was positive, so I think clinical history is more important going forward? I, I, I really think clinical history and stuff is more important than, than repeating the test. And most labs, well, they won't do it again in six months anyway. Right. Uh, you could repeat it in a year to see if it's a persistent positive. But, I, you know, I wouldn't really push it much more than that. 
Okay. I was talking to the residents here today talking about lupus versus dermatomyositis. And I did say, you know, when I was a resident, we always got our ANA spit back as a one in 80, one in 160, whatever. Um, but now our lab is it's either positive or negative, And then right. it immediately does the extractable nuclear yep. antigens. And if so it's positive. Yeah. So yep. I think it's it, you know, things are changing from that perspective, as you mentioned. I do want to talk a little bit more about lupus and, and actually a little bit more about lupus versus dermatomyositis, because I think as dermatologists, it's a challenge sometimes to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's early on, if there's not obvious muscle involvement, um, biopsies can look very similar. And so, you know, um, let's say you've got sort of a 30 year old female that comes in with sort of, you know, erythema, a bit of poikiloderma, photosensitivity, doesn't have muscle symptoms yet. What would what would prompt you to think it's more DM versus lupus, or do you just give it time to show itself or uh, uh, what's the word? Um, Declare itself. Declare itself. Thank you. Yes. So um, I'm always good at speaking for other people. (laughs) Um, the, um, The, the real thing there is a careful clinical exam. Uh, And, and so the, there are subtle differences in the patterns. So both lupus and dermatomyositis give you a red face, mm-hmm. but in uh, dermatomyositis, there's a higher predilection for the upper eyelids. There's a, certainly a higher predilection for redness, telangiectatic change to the scalp, um, the, the, the oral gingiva, uh, and the proximal nail folds. So right. uh, those are places I, 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 I pay special attention to. Then there's the, uh, the acral erythema, which is uh, on the joints or on the uh, upper back and the chest uh, and tends to be a little more violaceous in dermatomyositis than in lupus. Um, you know, most patients with lupus, uh, unless they have acute cutaneous lupus uh, and have sort of this red overall uh, sheen to them, right? Um, mm-hmm have the more specific cutaneous lupus features. So either they have subacute cutaneous and it looks like psoriasis or there's a white red, you know, uh, annular plaques, or or they have discoid disease uh, where there's clearly, uh, you know, follicular plugging and scarring and change. Um, The the, the more, and and all those things are all pretty easy once you've recognized the patterns. Right. And and once you know what to look for. the one that's harder to recognize is the dermatomyositis, and that's where you have to go looking in the scalp. You have to go looking in the fingernails, and 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 looking for that pattern. Uh, that, and and really, that's that's what it is. I mean, it's ideally you're going to identify these people before they get weakness, mm-hmm. um, and the lab isn't going to help you because mm-hmm. in DM most patients may not have an ANA. I mean. You can have an ANA in what 50-50, but it doesn't help you in the diagnosis. Right. And as you uh, correctly said, the biopsy doesn't help you either. Yeah. Because it'll be read as interface dermatitis. So, so what we have now, at least um, in our neck of the woods, uh, is access to uh, the dermatomyositis-specific uh, autoantibody profiles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, thanks to uh, the laboratory services in Calgary, we're able to get those. Uh, right. And I find they're very helpful uh, yeah. because they can help uh, 
they're really quite specific for dermatomyositis, first of all, and they can also give you a clue as to what flavor of dermatomyositis the patient will have. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be that the hardest diagnosis to make in, in room derm, as far as I was concerned, was was the you know the dermatomyositis where you had no muscles and you had joint disease and mm-hmm. you had um, vascular disease. You know the 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 uh, like the amyopathic the amyopathic ones, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and now we have antibodies that can that can help us with that, right? I always forget about that, and I, I actually remember hearing a talk about that at CDA and saying you can order blood work and send it to Calgary, and I, I keep forgetting. So I'm going to remember to do that because uh, I do think there are some yeah. cases where you kind of say I don't I don't know, and you don't want to launch into a treatment algorithm without being a bit more definitive. Right, right, and I mean. Uh, you know, and there are specific antibody profiles that are associated with, for example, increased risk of calcinosis in an adult. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. SAE1 antibody profile uh, or malignancy like TIF1 gamma. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those that, that has become a, a really helpful tool, in, in my opinion, uh, for, for moving forward the diagnosis, although it still remains primarily a clinical one. Uh, right. Look at the nail folds. Look at uh, uh, all those other things. I think we're we're still trying to identify the the minimum clinical cassette to be able to make that diagnosis, and that's something that's still in evolution. But we have a much better appreciation of the variability uh, of findings in, in dermatomyositis. Now, would you utilize that, um, you know, the the blood work or what you may get back as specific autoantibodies to determine if you would do a malignancy workup, for example, or is there another um, type of patient that you might say, eh, this person deserves an age-specific, um, you know, cancer workup? Um, well, yeah. Uh, f- frankly, most adults, I think, with DM deserve a screen. Um and I don't think that I would withhold a screen if they didn't have a higher risk autoantibody profile. Right. Okay. Uh, I think TIF1 gamma is the antibody that is the, has the highest association, but there is quite a bit of overlap with the different antibodies. So in, in most adults who present with dermatomyositis, I would proceed with, with, with a rational, uh, you know, symptom-based screen. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, especially in in the in the elderly patients, right? Um, so yeah. we actually rescreen them at at six month intervals for the first two years because most statistics suggest that your risk of ma- associated malignancy goes down after that period of time. And so, would you screen them uh, every six months, predominantly with with imaging or with uh, history or physical findings and I mean, I guess the other question is, I, I always try to say I would do age appropriate or Correct. history appropriate. So, you know, mammogram, pap smear, con- consider colonoscopy if it's been a certain amount of time, prostate, right. blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I also know there's some people that advocate for sort of like throw them in the CT head to toe and see what happens. But um, <laughs> I, t- I tend not to do that. No, I, we I, don't. We okay. At our center, we don't either. Um, there are some American centers where there's been a discussion on the value of doing a uh, a PET scan, for example, to look for, for disease. I think right. uh, if you do a careful and cautious clinically based screen, uh, a, as you mentioned, 
uh, I think that's reasonable. Okay. I add actually uh, oropharyngeal examination as well. Okay. Um, and I've had some discussions with my ENT colleagues about, you know, why are you sending him to me? Um, we, we know that the incidence of oropharyngeal uh, uh, cancer is increasing related to HPV. That may start decreasing with, with uh, availability of vaccines, but mm -hmm. we're still in the point where the, that age group is increasing. So that's a risk. Mm -hmm. and, and we have people with nasopharyngeal disease from, from, from Asian countries. Right. So I think both of those things are things that aren't hugely invasive. Have someone have a look at you, make yeah. sure we're not missing anything there. So that in addition to the usual, you know, chest X-ray uh, and um, uh, in, in women, ultrasound, vaginal ultrasound and, and pelvic ultrasound to look for ovarian disease. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's pretty reasonable. Thinking about coming back to doing things on regular intervals, what about the patient that initially presents um, with the amyopathic version? You know, are you asking the questions around muscle weakness? Are you testing for muscle weakness each time you see them? Um, or do you think a certain period passes whereby you'd say, yeah, they're probably not going to develop the muscle involvement? Yeah. So the question is, is the patient with dermatomyositis uh, pre-myopathic or truly amyopathic? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and um, the uh, literature isn't clear on that, but uh, Sontheimer and colleagues have defined uh, patients with amyopathic as having had disease without clinical weakness after a period of, I think, one to two years, about two years. Um, and so uh, it makes sense to, to screen people for weakness and ask for weakness um, uh, definitively within the first year. But okay. I would say after the first year, the value of doing that sort of decreases. And I'd be curious to see what you do. So my father is a retired neurologist. And so probably, I don't know, maybe when I was a baby, he was teaching me how to do, you know, strength exams. But I basically get a patient to sit up from a chair without assistance. I do their muscle strength in their proximal upper extremities, and I leave it at that. Um, what, do, what do you do for clinical screening? Okay. Um, so so dermatomyositis, <laughs> yeah. Um what um what what we tend to do is we we look for proximal muscle weakness right mm -hmm. so dermatomyositis is associated with proximal muscle weakness so the shoulder girdle the 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 pelvic limb girdle and the uh the uh, cervical musculature so mm -hmm. i also in addition to what you mentioned which is very reasonable screen i also check muscle uh, uh, neck flexors and extensors. Ah, okay. And it's usually the neck flexors action. It's a pretty simple thing. You just ask them to keep their head and, you know, push back. Push it. Um, and, and, and obviously there, there, some patients present with dysphagia and that, right. that can be a, a, a marker of severe disease. And so we ask them about that as well. Okay. Um, and then in terms of uh, investigation, so let's say you have some objective or subjective weakness. I know when I was a resident, it was like muscle biopsies, gold standard. Um, I feel like things, at least at our center, have moved a little bit more towards um, clinical EMG, MRI. What are you doing for diagnostics? Well, um, I <laughs> I have to, I, I don't know that I... In my experience, as I as I said, the diagnosis of dermatomyositis is clinical, right? Okay. So I don't. So you're not you're not doing those things. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. Honestly. I'm over investigating people. No, I'm not. I mean, we we do we we do send patients. Uh, I send patients for uh, uh, an MRI to see if there's muscle inflammation. Mm -hmm. If 
if they're if they're clinically weak, uh, or I send them to the neurologist for for EMGs for weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I figure at least in this disease I can make the diagnosis clinically, and yeah. I, and I don't need a, a piece of tissue to confirm the diagnosis for me. So, um, uh, you know what? To be fair, I may do those things because uh, I don't treat like if I have somebody that has muscle involvement, I will often refer them to rheumatology as we should. I think, yeah, so that may also differ between you and I, where you would be able to do both, and I go "Uh," and have to prove it. Yeah, yeah. so (laughs) muscle disease takes us often into into high dose corticosteroids, Mm -hmm. and there we like to have the rheumatologist on hand to help us with that decision and with that treatment, and and it's it's that room germ collaboration the rooms will order will order uh, uh mris and muscle biopsies and emgs i usually follow them with the the neurologists and yeah. and there we get either an emg or as i said the the mri if we can get it um right. so so that helps and i mean i think the the one thing not to forget is is also uh, the association of this disease, not with only the malignancy, but interstitial lung disease. Right. And so yes. uh, the p- patients do need, uh, in my opinion, a baseline chest X-ray and pulmonary function tests yeah. because that can be rapidly progressive. Number one, and number two can lead to to patient demise if right. it's not uh, if it's not aggressively uh, uh, sought after and is missed. And, yeah. and you can get interstitial lung disease in amyopathic disease. So I think every patient deserves a, a baseline workup for lung disease. That's an excellent point. And I think, you know, as residents, you often hear, you think about antisynthetase syndrome and you think about, okay, there's a mechanics hands and then that triggers your idea of interstitial lung disease. But you're right. Um, every patient deserves that at baseline and pulmonary function tests and chest x-ray, it's pretty easy, pretty cheap. Yeah. We used to, th- I mean... Uh, honestly, I used to think, and I actually got into a debate with my my, my colleague, Room Derms, uh, uh, saying that antisynthetase syndrome was was totally separate from dermatomyositis, that it was a different disease, right. and that mechanics hands was not dermatomyositis. But if you actually look at the published literature, it, it is there is a, an overlap. So mm-hmm. there are patients mm-hmm. with DM, dermatomyositis, that do get changes in their fingers, and and are likely at higher risk of interstitial lung disease. So right, uh, yeah. and that that goes with the the antibody autoantibody profile as well. Okay, um, I just want to shift gears a little bit, thinking about the cutaneous manifestations of dermatomyositis, and specifically um, whether the patient's amyopathic or whether their muscle disease is, is improved. I find one of the most challenging things that I have is actually treating their skin um, mm-hmm. because I find it's incredibly yep. difficult to to treat successfully. So do you have any pearls or tips or in your experience, what do you think is, is most effective for, you know, beyond sun protection, um, sun avoidance, you know, what do you think, what has, what in your hands has worked best for the cutaneous manifestation? Yeah. So I I can give you my, my, my treatment ladder. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the classic textbook treatment ladder is, is anti-malarials number one, Mm -hmm. uh, and then methotrexate number two, uh, and then uh, azathioprine, cyclosporin, mycophenolate, mofetil, mm-hmm. uh, and IVIG. Mm-hmm. So that's the the classic ladder. It, our our evidence uh, for the utility of antimalarials is mixed. 
-hmm. And in fact, some studies have suggested that the incidence of or the, the frequency of response to antimalarials is almost the same as the frequency of rashes associated with antimalarials. <laughs> so, so, so David Fiorentino, who has one of the largest clinics of patients with primarily cutaneous dermatomyositis that he follows at Stanford, um, has associated uh, uh, rashes uh, it, with the use of antimalarials to a specific autoantibody profile. I forget okay. what that is right now, but it, it, there is. Okay. And um, um, he, and he's found uh, in his practice that a predictor of complete response of getting better is uh, having a malignancy that you can, I guess, the assumption is that you can get it removed and right. you're older yeah. uh, and being treated with mycophenolate mofetil. Hmm. Okay. So MMF tends, at least in his practice, uh, may be a little more effective than others. Okay. Uh, Frankly, I should say it's a difficult disease to treat. If mm -hmm. methotrexate, as I, said, I don't use any malarials very often, if at all, in this disease, I use methotrexate. If that doesn't work, I try to get mycophenolate mofetil. If I can get access to that, great. I use myfortic acid quite mm -hmm. often because I find people that are on Cellcept or mycophenolate mofetil have uh, have a significant incidence of GI intolerance, and so then right. we, we we move on to myfortic acid, which is another formulation of the same drug. Right. When that doesn't work, I, I usually go directly to IVIG. Now I have access to IVIG in my, in my community and I'm probably one of the higher users of it overall, but it works exceedingly well. And we know we've known that since the 1970s, I think from studies at the NIH that IVIG works well for, um, dermatomyositis, both muscle and skin. Um, one of the, the newer concepts is that, um, that rituximab may work. The original right. trials failed, but we think that that was possibly due to the way the outcomes were settled. Right. So the rheumatologists in severe disease are tending to use rituximab a little more. Okay. The other, um, the other thing that, that works well, uh, but that we have uh, some difficulty getting hold of, are the JAK inhibitors. Right. So uh, tofacitinib, in my opinion, is probably one of the best treatments for dermatomyositis. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunately still currently off-label. There have been case series published uh, through uh, clinics in Boston, and there is uh, an ongoing trial uh, looking at the utility of using uh, JAK inhibitors for this disease. Uh, and uh, we often uh, get access to it as a way out of IVIG because mm -hmm. IVIG is so expensive. So right. our, our insurer, our, our public insurer will allow us to use it as a cost-saving measure. Interesting. Um, one of the residents did have this specific question. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Matthew Nicholas from the University of Toronto. My question is, what is your approach to treating calcinosis in a dermatomyositis patient? Yeah. Calcinosis is, again, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that we have a solution for that yet. So what, um, the, what I tell my patients is that if they're getting calcinosis, that indicates to me that their disease process is still active. Right. So if we shut down the disease, they should shut down forming calcium. And so I use my traditional ladder that I went through mm -hmm. and, and make sure they're on, uh, uh, active treatment or appropriate treatment to try to decrease further calcium deposition. Okay. Once calcium is deposited, 
it's very difficult to get rid of it. Right. So um, we have tried, uh, or my colleagues at the DART clinic, we have a clinic where Sheila Ao works with Cam Shajanya. Okay. He's a rheumatologist. She's a dermatologist. They work together uh, and have tried uh, sodium thiosulfate uh, topically and by injection. Yeah. And um, with with decidedly mixed results. I, I, it's uncomfortable. And I, I'm not sure that in that way, it works that well. Right. You know, it works. I think there's good evidence now that it works for, for, for calciphylaxis. Yep. And if it's given systemically, but it's again, not an easy thing to source and not an easy thing to treat. Interestingly, was, I have uh, I have sourced it uh, orally for a couple of my patients here with calciphylaxis. There's a uh, there is a recipe, but I and it, it's a, it's really cheap to do it that way. But it's also more challenging to titrate, I think, because it doesn't have the same um, uh, absorption as the IV version. Right. So that's, so that's oral for calciphylaxis. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, it might be a thing to, to eventually try yeah. that in a, in a series of patients. There's a uh, resident paper. Uh, yeah, there, in, if, any, in, if any of the residents want to give that, do a case series with uh, oral calciphylaxis, uh, let us know. So so the, the, the patients that I see with persistent calcium where it's a problem yeah. are patients with, uh, uh, with uh, limited systemic sclerosis where they get it on the digits. Yes. So that's what used to be yeah. called CREST or CREST. Yeah. Um, and there I, I send them uh, either to my, my plastic surgery colleagues for removal of, of, of localized tumors that, that impair activity. Okay. So surgery can be an option. And uh, if, if the deposits are small, CO2 laser can be another option. So okay. those are options that we've pursued. And for the larger deposits, essentially, I, I, I work with my plastic surgeons uh, to remove them because there's really very little else that can be done. Um, there may be some new treatments in the, in the near future, but, but uh, nothing that I can, I can vouch for at this time. I wonder if, uh, this is just coming to my head, but you know, when people have kidney stones, they use lithotripsy. I <laughs> so, so uh, ultrasound or li lithotripsy has been described as uh, a treatment and, uh, we've tried it. Um, okay. but again, it's, uh, you know, whatever you can do to mobilize, I guess, the macrophages. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess that wasn't as novel a thought as I, as I <laughs> thought it was. <laughs> well, a, no, no, it, it's certainly, it's certainly up there as a possibility, but you know, it, it's been such a hard nut to crack that, yeah. that, that clinicians have tried, you know, the, a, the list is as long as our arms, right? Uh, bisphosphonates, uh, colchicine, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, but none of them have, have really risen above that. So when uh, uh, David, we I think, uh, yeah, David Wetter, who's at uh, the Mayo Clinic, did a review of the outcomes of their patients with calcinosis uh, at the Mayo Clinic. And, and essentially, uh, you know, the calcium antagonists may be, but really the, the best treatment was to cut it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When in doubt, cut it out. Although yep. I do always say to the residents, you know, when when fifty different things have been tried, nothing works great. So exactly. Um, so okay. so this is where I say, you know, treat the process. <laughs> yeah. Treat the process. Make sure you've got the DM, the inflammation under control, uh, and uh, and 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 do that aggressively. Right. 
And I think that's good advice. Yeah. So th- I think that's a, a pretty good review of the the questions that we had around dermatomyositis. I do want to just um, briefly chat a little bit about lupus. And I think uh, the cutaneous lupus or lupidities, if, if that's a word, um, are something that the, the residents in derm see relatively frequently. I think sometimes it's challenging to think about when and if there is systemic lupus, um, how aggressively you need to work up those cutaneous lupus patients. Um, and some of the questions I know, even talking today, you know, it's easy to ask someone about joint pain. I find it more challenging to ask people about neurologic or psychiatric symptoms. And so when you see those cutaneous lupus patients, um, what kind of things are you thinking about or what would clue you into saying, okay, maybe this is one of those, you know, five or 10% of the systemic people. Right. So what we normally teach is that the, the, the conversion rate of skin only lupus to systemic lupus is, as you said, maybe, uh, maybe 5% to the highest 20%. If you look at the literature and it, and it tends to be cumulative over time. So I think the, just as in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, you know how you, the patients present with psoriasis, they have disease of the skin, mm-hmm. maybe eight years, and then one per hundred patients gets joint disease per year, and it sort of accumulates. We have the same sort of phenomenon happening in lupus. So we have uh, a gradual uh number of patients that convert to systemic disease. Mm -hmm. So it's really something that you need to be sensitized about and keep asking. So in my practice, I have some patients that I followed for with skin only disease for maybe five years, eight years, 10 years, Mm -hmm. and then they get systemic disease. And so uh, there are a number of things that can clue you uh, on to to, to, that something's happening. Uh, Obviously, the arthritis is the easy one, right? Mm the neuropsychiatric can be really difficult. I don't think most patients present with isolated neuropsychiatric disease. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that situation, they're usually sick and have arthritis and other features, right? Okay, yes. So uh, I don't really focus too much on that. The, okay. the thing I'm afraid to miss, okay, where I would, where I would sort of blame myself or feel bad is, is renal disease, right? Correct. So yep, people yep. can can die of renal disease, mm-hmm. they can lose kidney function, and it's not something that normally uh, they would know that they have. Exactly. So, so I do make sure that my patients with cutaneous lupus, that they get a urinalysis yearly, that they okay. get urine, um, a, a BUN and creatinine and a renal function, and, and that I make sure they don't have proteinuria. Because with, you know, uh, they won't know until it's too late that they exactly. have kidney disease. And that's something that we could potentially identify early and, and treat appropriately. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't really get to see your proteinuria. No, uh, like no, I don't. See your skin. And no, no, one, I've not have ever had anything. Oh, doctor, I have frothy urine now. <laughs> you know, it just, that doesn't happen. So, True. so one lady, one, one patient of mine, uh, who I followed with, with bad discoid lupus, uh, after about eight years, uh, she came to me and she said, something's different. I said, what's going on? I said, she said, I'm losing weight. Okay. Hmm. So okay. I thought, oh my God, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, she's got a cancer or something that I'm, you know, that we've missed. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, what she had was nephritis. She had, wow. she had kidney disease and she presented with weight loss. I mean, we wow. look at the kidneys and stuff. The, the other thing that you don't want to, 
The other thing that you should be aware of, like the rheumatologists are very aware of it, but I'm not sure the derms are, is that patients with lupus have an increased risk, actually very high increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. most of my lupus patients will die of a heart attack. Hmm. Uh, no matter what we do, we, we try to fix it, but we, we haven't figured out how to prevent it yet. And, and I think that goes for the skin lupus patients as well. Interesting. So I think it, you should go back to the family doctor and say, look, if any of your lupus patients present with a typical pain that could be, because these are women, right? Yeah, and they're often yeah. not, you know, they're not diagnosed until they have a massive heart attack and exactly. then it's too late. Yeah. They, they tend to have microvascular disease and with that microvascular disease, somewhat atypical symptoms. And I think that's another thing you need to be aware of. That's a great point. It's something I never think of. Um, would you advocate then that primary care physicians uh, try to aggressively manage any other cardiac risk factors in yep. your lupus patients? Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, we also talked a little bit about how you don't tend to use or find antimalarials particularly effective in dermatomyositis, but do you tend to find them more effective in your lupus patients? Oh yeah, they're they're hugely effective in lupus right. patients. Okay. And in fact, you could make an argument and 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 when I mentioned the things that what, what do you do with a positive ANA, right? Yeah. Um, if someone has skin lupus, uh, I I do and and has a positive ANA, right? So they have yeah. uh, maybe discoid lupus and a positive ANA. Uh, I do discuss, even though it may be just one lesion, the pros and cons of going on an antimalarial. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, uh, uh, years ago, a study of military recruits showed that being on an antimalarial uh, decreases the conversion to frank lupus disease mm -hmm. if you're ANA positive. Okay. Uh, and, um, and in those people that do have lupus, being on an antimalarial decreases flares uh, and and increases longevity. So there are many reasons to be on uh, an antimalarial uh, if if you have lupus, uh, and that's something that the the rheumatologist will discuss. It's become a bit of a question because of access to antimalarials in the COVID mm -hmm. era. Number one, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and number two, because of uh, the the potential worry of retinal toxicity. Right. So uh, what what rheumatologists don't what we don't know yet for sure is where that sweet point is. You know, where, you know, do you give someone a little bit of an antimalarial to decrease risk, right? <laughs> and not increase retinal toxicity risk. So that's, that's an air where the literature is still in evolution. And I guess that would also, you know, oftentimes when I have patients, this is my own sneaky in question, but you know, I'll have patients that have discoid lupus. Um, I'll give them something topical. I'll give them hydroxychloroquine. Um, things will shut down. I kind of keep them on it in my brain for six to 12 months. And then yep. sometimes I'll stop. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, would that be something, is that reasonable what I'm doing or should I continue <laughs> on forever? I kind of stop. And then if it comes oh, back, yeah. I'm like, Oh, here you go again. Yep. Yep. I don't. So, so my practice is to say um, what, if you, uh, if you're a stable, I, I usually go and maybe I've picked this sort of uh, a little bit um, out of thin hair. I don't know, but I I, I will keep people on antimalarials for about two years. Okay. And if they've been disease clinically disease free for two years, I stop them. Okay. So okay. so uh, because again, uh, you know, if and and then I continue to see them. And if they if if it comes back, then you've probably bought yourself an antimalarial for a longer period of time. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah. Uh, four years to life, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
like a sentence yep. um, <laughs> of hydroxy. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yep. Um, so, and then uh, with respect to say, you know, just experience using topical things in um, lupus, um, do you find that there's sort of one, do you find it's always topical steroid, intralesional steroid? I mean, this is sort of a question you can't ask, like, oh, what, what's always the case, but let's say in discoid lupus on the face, um, what would be, your, I think you need to use typical, potent steroids. I mean, it's like, it. okay. um, yeah. it's like psoriasis in non-facial lesions, you know, mm -hmm. you, you need to use, uh, something more than hydrocortisone. I would say something more than beta methasone. Yeah. I would say a class one or two steroid, in fact, right. um, there is the literature on using obviously calcineurin inhibitors. So mm -hmm. tacrolimus is useful, uh, but not uniformly useful and not forever useful. So the studies right. suggested that it, you got a good response with some recurrence six to eight weeks or, or 12 weeks down the line. So okay. uh, I tend to use uh, potent corticosteroids and then I tend to go to the pulse therapy uh, in that area and, uh, to decrease chance of recurrence. And okay. the pulse therapy, I continue that also for uh, a prolonged period of time. So okay. if, you, if you've had a, a discoid lesion and I've injected it, let's say, and or given you to, uh, potent topical steroids and, and that's improved, I usually do weekend pulses for up to about a year. Okay. Okay. That's, that's, uh, interesting. You know, um, I have certainly had some success with injections. Um, some people yeah. will develop a little bit of post-inflammatory pigment change after the yeah. fact, but that usually goes back to normal. I find. It does. It um, does. so I think we've, we've, we've covered a lot about dermatomyositis and lupus. And yep. honestly, I mean, we could probably talk for the same amount of time on all of the other, you know, autoimmune conditions, auto-inflammatories, it's a whole other topic. Um, and at, at first I thought we might be able to delve into a bit of, of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, but I think we, we really covered a lot of stuff. Just thinking purely about autoimmune, um, mm -hmm. because I, you know, we could probably revisit later topics at a future date if you're, if you're sure. willing to, to come back. Um, do you think that there's things that you know, more across the board or that just, you see that dermatologists or dermatology residents, you know, are there any pearls or areas that you would say, gosh, I really wish they knew more about X, Y, or Z because I just see it as a weak, a weak spot. Or do you think we're. So okay? the question is, so, yeah. What are the knowledge gaps and Correct. What, yes. what are our knowledge gaps and That's what right. are our therapeutic gaps? Yes. Um, so we have gaps in both areas. Mm -hmm. uh, so the knowledge gaps are, um, uh, in in lupus, it's it's uh, being sensitized to the fact that uh, even patients with chronic cutaneous lupus can get systemic disease, right. and we've talked about that. Yep. Uh, that these patients really probably should be followed mm -hmm. um, uh, over the, over a long period, especially if they're positive ANA. Um, the uh, I think that's the main knowledge gap um, from from the derm side. Okay. Yeah. Um, from in terms of dermatomyositis, uh, the knowledge gap there is uh, the ability to is is make use of antibodies if you can get them. Mm -hmm. They they give you a clue to specific patterns of disease. Yeah. Uh, having said that, we we now recognize those patterns um, even with the absence of access to the antibodies. Okay. Right. So TIF one gamma has some psoriasiform-like lesions more commonly, SAE1 uh, antibodies, the calcinosis, 
and there, there are specific features to, to different flavors of dermatomyces. So we're starting to learn that. I think the other areas where there's knowledge gaps um, are, uh, are systemic sclerosis and morphia, yeah. um, that, they're, that localized systemic sclerosis or Crest syndrome is definitely a different disease than generalized systemic sclerosis, mm -hmm. and that morphia is different than, than either of those two. Uh, especially if you have generalized morphia or pan-sclerotic morphia, you have patients that have, you know, that that basically freeze up by inflammation uh, in a very quick period mm -hmm. and are misdiagnosed as having systemic sclerosis. Right. So systemic sclerosis is sort of like dermatomyositis. It's primarily a vascular disorder. It presents with Raynaud's and a specific autoantibody profile and then skin thickening. Whereas right. morphia presents as, as inflammation that is usually deeper in the dermis and, and not in the upper layers of the skin uh, and needs to be treated aggressively. So I, I think there's a, there's a treatment gap in morphia in that we normally say, well, you have one or two plaques, okay, put this on and, and it'll go away. And invariably it doesn't go away. I think morphia often requires systemic treatment. Uh, I think methotrexate is still underused for that condition. Uh, and we need to think of other alternatives for treatment when that doesn't work. And, uh, you know, eosinophilic fasciitis, in my mm -hmm. opinion, is an extension of morphia. It's the same process, mm -hmm. the, the, same, uh, the same inflammatory actors, and, uh, and again, is often uh, misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just the toxic oil disease. I think we get patients that get that after exertion or something, and 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 get this freezing up of their tendons and their skin and they need to be treated aggressively right well what it sounds like to me is that we could probably have an entire series of dermatology rheumatology dermalogs <laughs> yeah there's a few there's <laughs> lots of stuff well Alyssa, though i do i want to i really thank you for taking the time to to chat with me today and um, i personally learned a few pearls and tips i know the residents will take a lot from this and so i really appreciate your time um, and thank you for joining me here at dermalogs okay very good that was dr jan dutz professor and head of the department of dermatology and skin science at ubc and that's it for this episode of dermalogs Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And if you liked it, give us a rating. Tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast so you can share on social media. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.